After marking number 767, 767, we will take up our consideration this evening in the book of Judges. It is truly a blessing, isn't it, to be able to come together in the way that we are. So many of our brethren around this world earlier today have worshipped, often under threats, sometimes in very uncomfortable, unpleasant circumstances, and yet, as they did so, they rang beautifully the wonderful praises to God. And you and I have been blessed to be able to meet the way that we have this evening. Be turning in the book of Judges, if you would, and we will pick up our record there in just a few moments. As we begin our study, though, these introductory comments will motivate us in the following way. Haven't you often found it an encouraging thing when a smaller number of righteous overwhelm and defeat, or at least are victorious, in the face of a much larger number of wickedness? That has, of course, happened many times in history. Just to mention a few from the Word of God, could I call to your attention 1 Kings 18? It was on that occasion, one lone servant of God, his name was Elijah. He, in fact, confronted in a very direct way, though hundreds of prophets of Baal, and yet by the time that day ended, that prophet of God not only was the one who had appreciated the grandeur of serving God, but those prophets of Baal had met their demise. Or what about that scene in 2 Kings 6 when there it was the successor of Elijah, a man named Elisha. It was on that occasion that he, of course, had to tell his servants, look with care to the mountaintops and in flaming majesty, a whole host of servants of God were visible. It looked as though God's people were outnumbered. It looked as though those who were the servants of God met a much greater host. It was the enemy. Tonight, though, let's look at another scene. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, a man named Gideon. Now, it's probably a record rather familiar to us, but as we revisit it tonight, we'll look at his small army and how it was that he, together with them, enjoyed a dramatic victory. And it's one that, in fact, was a great blessing to the people of God. And so we'll take up our study in chapter 6 of the book of Judges, and that particular record will begin like this. Let's first of all rehearse the setting so that we'll be more ready to appreciate that lesson when that interesting event came. God's people at this time were in a very, very difficult situation. You and I probably think of it in some ways like this. God's people, when they entered into the land of Canaan, they were the ones that were the victors. They overran and overwhelmed those Palestinians already living there, and God's people enjoyed victory. But a few hundred years later, God's people had begun to not be the victors anymore. In fact, the other peoples like the Philistines and the other peoples that in fact were so very harsh toward Israel. Beginning in chapter 6 of Judges, this is the rather difficult record we read. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Let me pause. The Midianites were individuals, they were peoples that were known for their harshness and known for their great capabilities militarily. For seven long years, the Midianites oppressed the Israelites. And let me detail, at least in passing character, some of what they did. I believe it would make any of us angry. The Midianites would wait until about harvest time. 
And so the farmers in Israel, they'd tend the crops and plow the field and go to all the work of harvesting it. And then the Midianites in large numbers would come and forcibly take it. They didn't leave anything for Israel. These Midianites would come and they would take all the produce, all the crops, all the blessedness that would come from those things, leaving almost nothing for Israel. How would you feel if you had toiled all year, planting the crop, plowing it, taking care of it, and then when harvest time comes, they'd come and take it from you and wouldn't leave you a thing? I believe any of us would be rather upset. In fact, we would be very worried in that, how will I take care of my family? The Midianites did that year after year after year. At that point, we began to notice they finally came to their senses and cried to God. Doesn't it make you wonder, why didn't they cry to God before this? But finally, they recognized that they did have it a lot better when they served God. And so they cried to God and God heard them. And He made the decision that he's going to select a deliverer. You and I are going to call him Gideon here in just a moment. But as you'll notice on this particular slide, an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Now oddly enough, Gideon in fact was threshing his father's wheat and he was doing so trying to conceal it from the Midianites. This angel appeared to him and basically commissioned Gideon, you go and deliver my people, God said, from these oppressing Midianites. And as you'll notice on that slide, it was a rather impressive conversation. I might ask you to notice, Gideon at first was a bit hesitant. I've always been impressed, just like you no doubt are, because of the reasoning in Gideon's heart. Gideon said, I am of the tribe of Manasseh which is one of the least in Israel. And not only that, he said, I am the least in my father's house. God, are you sure you can use me? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that others are more talented, more noble, more capable? May all of us recognize, however, God has a task we all can do. Didn't Jesus on one occasion say in Matthew chapter 10, Only those who give a cup of cold water in my name, they'll in no wise lose their reward. Maybe you and I then ought to recognize what a great work God can do for those who will simply be instruments in His mighty hand. Finally, Gideon would come to realize that. As you and I consider, consider the story forward, you notice that the very same night that that angel appeared to him, you might notice God appeared to Gideon and gave him some orders. If I may paraphrase, God said, Gideon, you go and tear down your father's idols. We'll revisit that before this lesson's over. But aren't you impressed? Gideon, you go and use your father's own second oldest bullock and tear down his, his idols and the grove that's beside it. That very night, Gideon did what God told him to do. At that point, it brings us to note also the following. The next day, Gideon's father defended what his son had done the previous night. And in that defense, perhaps we can begin to appreciate maybe his own father was becoming to realize the error of his way due to the courage and the boldness of his son. It is to that I might add this. Put yourself now in Gideon's position. A large enemy host was gathering. 
although you and I do not find it in this chapter, we find it in the next one. The enemy numbered 135,000 people. 135,000 were assembled of these Midianites, and not only that, of the children of the east, the text tells us. And inasmuch as they were assembled, Gideon now at this point began to assemble his enemy, or rather his army. People from Manasseh, people from Zebulun, people from Asher. As they were assembled, I might invite you to notice, he had succeeded in a pulling together a 32,000 fighting men. Now, even at that point, he was outnumbered four to one. However, that was not going to do it. But maybe not in the way you and I expected. You might well appreciate it was at this point that chapter 6 closes and Gideon asked for a dramatic sign that God would use him. It involved a piece of fleece. God, I'm going to put a piece of fleece and tonight put dew on the fleece but none on the surrounding land. And sure enough, that night God did it. And the next day, Gideon made this statement, Please don't be angry. But as a final testament that you'll use me, I'm going to put a fleece out again tonight. I want the fleece to be dry and the dew everywhere around it. And sure enough, that night it happened again, just as Gideon had desired. Now again, may we note, that's not a statement of Gideon's doubt in God. It's a statement, if anything, about doubting himself. God, can I lead an army against this vast number and be successful? God's testament, absolutely you can do it because I'll be with you. I'll be with you, Gideon. At that point, you and I close that slide by noting this, and this is probably the part of the record most familiar to us. God, as chapter 7 opened, said, Gideon, your army is too large. Can you ever imagine a military general feeling that way? My army is too big. Now remember, the enemy was 135,000. Gideon's army numbered 32,000. It was still outnumbered four to one. And yet God told Gideon, I'm going to have to reduce your army because as was read a moment ago in the lesson text, Andrew pointed out to us, God said, if I send this number in... You may think that it was by your might that victory was attained. It might be such that you would think that you were the cause of the victory. And so, Gideon, here's what you do. Every man that's afraid and every man that has any fear, you let him go home. 22,000 men went home. That left only 10,000 men to face an army of the enemy of 135,000. But God said that's still too many. And thus, God said, I'd like to test them, and I'll bring all the men down to the river, down to the place where there's water, and I want the following separation to be made. Watch with care all of those who bend down on their knees and drink directly from water into their mouth. You take note of that. And also those who cup the water with their hand and bring it to their mouth. In terms of number, 9,700 bent down on their knees and drank directly from the river. 300 used their hand to bring their water to their mouth. God said to Gideon, I'm going to take that number into battle, the 300, and you'll be victorious with them. Consider now this with me. 
300 versus 135,000. Gideon's army was outnumbered 450 to 1. Think about those odds, my friend. How would you have felt leading an army of 300 against an army of 135,000? And yet, that's the very shoes in which Gideon was standing. As you and I close that slide, doesn't it make us wonder how did this turn out and what were the details? Without reading the major part of the latter part of it, may I ask you to notice in a stroke of brilliance, Gideon divided that mere meager number of 300 into three companies, each one only 100 people. And he stationed them strategically around the actual battle site. And when the actual time of the battle ensued, it was the Midianites that were fearful because they were under the impression that they were surrounded by the enemy, which was only so few compared to them. And when Gideon gave the word, they broke the, the, the matters that were with them, the pitchers that were there, and the sound was such that the enemy thought that, again, there were far many more of them. And they actually began to kill themselves. They were fighting one against another rather than against Israel. And ultimately, Israel enjoyed a tremendous, dramatic, very important victory. Gideon's small army did it with God all behind it, of course. And as you and I close that slide, what a resounding victory it was. What are some lessons that might be so beneficial, so helpful to you and to me today as Christians? Some of these, I suppose, will be easy enough to appreciate, but they're so very meaningful. Let's begin with this one. The simple truth and the simple demand of obedience. There are several scenes in this that testify to it. Let me draw a few of them to your attention. First of all, what about that occasion when God specifically told Gideon, you take your dad's bullock, one of the fine bullocks of his flock, and you use it to pull down the idol, and not only that, you offer that bullock as a sacrifice to me. Now, Dad could become mighty angry at that. It's one of his finest bullocks. And not only that, the whole town used that statue, that idol, to worship Baal. And Gideon destroyed it all in one night. Could you and I be enough to say Gideon obeyed God rather than his dad? And that teaches all of us, in principle, an incredible lesson. We must love God more than we love our family. Many an individual has, in fact, loved father or mother or brother or sister or sometimes even children more so than God. And as much as we love our family and as much as we wish the best for them, if family opposes God, we must love God the more. We must place as higher priority service to the Almighty God of heaven. Wasn't it Jesus who said in Luke 14, 26, If any man love father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter more than me, he's not worthy of me. That's strong, isn't it? How many times have individuals through the ages found themselves in a position whereby they had to make a decision? My wife or my husband is placing me in this position, but God says just the opposite. Which will I do? Wasn't it another occasion that Jesus said, I came to bring a sword, 
a sword that may well divide families. Because wasn't it true even in Bible times, there were sometimes individuals whose family opposed God. That particular challenge of obedience is something that leads us even tonight to say that our devotion to God must be that which is supreme, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say in Mark chapter 12, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That degree of love takes us really to another stage in this, for not only was that a matter testifying to Gideon's obedience, one of the facets that came shortly before the battle ensued was this. God told Gideon, you go down and you survey in a statistical way the enemy camp. How would you have felt? marching toward an enemy camp of 135,000 men when all there was was you and one, one servant. Would you have been fearful? Would you have perhaps trembled and wondered, is this a wise move? Is it a strategic action? And yet Gideon did it. And in that way, he learned one more time, following God always works best because our God always does what's right. You'll notice on that slide, may we jump to the New Testament. Obedience seems such a simple thing. God said, you've got to be baptized. No logic of man will ever overturn what God said. Men have tried now for over 500 years to somehow discount baptism, but they'll never succeed. Because God said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. And in Revelation 7, we learn who are those that are blessed to stand before the great throne of God in heaven? Those that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that washing comes according to Acts twenty-two sixteen when you're baptized. Isn't it true we might learn it like this? Those that enter heaven will be those who are baptized. Those who obey God. Those who do what He says. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Those that obey him are the ones upon whom will be showered the eternal blessings of that marvelous, unending life. In Revelation twenty-two fourteen, the last page in the Bible Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Obedience is so vital, and it is so required by God, isn't it? Let's close that slide then like this. Gideon teaches all of us a valiant lesson. He stood against his own father. He stood against a great enemy, and he did so with the great strength of God at his back. What about a second lesson, however? Not only might we be reminded about the issue of obedience, but what about confidence? I'm sure all of us thrill at the thought of confidence in God, and perhaps of all the matters in the book of Judges, this one might be the very best one to teach that lesson. Let's develop it like this. Near the close of Judges chapter 6, Gideon again gave a great lesson concerning the fleece. But it was a lesson in which he himself was taught by God. 
that he need not doubt himself because God was with him. Though I mentioned it earlier, it's certainly reasonable to at least consider it again. Have there been times in your life when you've wondered, God, I can't. I don't have the talent. I don't have the capability. There are others wiser, stronger, better, more knowledgeable than I. When all the while God may say, listen, I'll be with you. I've got a plan and a work that only you are best suited to do. Because isn't it true that not always is the victory for who who appears the strongest? Did Gideon appear to be the strongest? He was the least in his father's house. He was the least in the tribe of Manasseh. And yet who was it that enjoyed victory? What great confidence you and I can enjoy as Christians. Confidence that we might develop like this. You did notice it with me, didn't you? Gideon did go into battle, outnumbered 450 to 1. And yet he won. Not because the victory belonged only to him, but because it belonged to the one who was with him. It belonged to the one who was providing the encouragement and the strength and the fortitude. May we develop it like this. What about some of these other examples in the Bible? And then we'll come full circle in just a moment. The great victory of Gideon reminds us maybe about the three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3. Here were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and under the great matter of that idolatry that was foisted upon them, they said, we will not bow down to the idol. However, there was a threat of a fiery furnace looming right before them, and they still said, be it known unto you, O king, we will not bow down. Our God is able to deliver us. How much confidence do you have in God? Do you and I sometimes become fearful that we really don't know, we don't think that God is able? Gideon knew that he was able. The three Hebrew children, Daniel's friends, knew that he was able. Why don't we add another one to that list? In Luke 8 verse 50, Jesus highlighted the incredible requirement of understanding confidence in Him, confidence in God. It is at that point we might thus close that slide like this. We as Christians must appreciate the fact we have every right to be confident in our God. We have a Bible that testifies that through now 6,000 years of human history, God's people like Abraham, like Noah, Lot, Gideon, David, Jesus Himself, and so many others that might be listed. They have given to us an example that we should be confident in our God, believing in Him, understanding of Him, appreciative of Him. And it is in that way these verses at the bottom are a direct challenge to you and me as Christians. Listen to some of these passages. 1 John 5, verse number 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything in His name, we have what we ask of Him. In prayer, are you confident? Now, we understand well that their prayers must be asked according to His will, and sometimes therein lies the great challenge to make sure that our will is consistent with His, and thus to always pray that God's will be done. What did Jesus say in Matthew 19, 26? With God, all things are possible. 
And even in the face of persecution, oppression, affliction, and duress, Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Those are passages exuding with confidence, aren't they? And that confidence comes to you and to me as those men and women, boys and girls who would serve the Lord Jesus Christ, ever recognizing that we truly are merely in His hand. And our confidence doesn't rest upon our ability. It doesn't rest on our knowledge or our capability. It rests fundamentally and finally upon the God whom we serve. What about lesson three? In addition to these two, one that had to do with confidence, the other that had to remind us about the appreciation of obedience. What about victory? I'm sure we all expected that one to come at some point, but it's time to zero in on it and to understand truly what a fantastic lesson it is. Victory. I've never known anyone that looked forward to losing. Be it sports teams, be it political races, we all enjoy being on the winning side, being on the team that's victorious. Those that enjoy triumphant character, and yet, as those who serve God, we are guaranteed to be on that side. Let's develop it like this. Gideon's forces, though outnumbered, they were 450 to 1. They enjoyed not just victory, it was overwhelming victory if you'll read the latter part of Judges 7. It is in that light that you and I might add these verses to it. As followers of God, may we all appreciate the fact that the Word of God has some very directed truths to share with us. Truths that assure us of victory. The guarantee of God toward that end might well be stated in ways like this. In 2 Kings 6 verse 16, wasn't it there that Elisha told his servant, the servant was so agitated, the servant was so bothered because we are outnumbered, Elisha. There's only two of us. And they, together with what few forces that were with them, and yet the enemy seemed so vast. Elisha prayed, God, open the eyes of the servant. And when he did, he was able to see on the mountaintops were chariots of fire that were on his side. If you and I could appreciate, it's true the devil looks so strong. This world appears to be headed right down the pathway to destruction, following wholeheartedly what the devil says. But you and I know that Jesus and the Revelation, among so many other places gave us a surefire guarantee of the ways to defeat the devil. Come back on Wednesday night, or rather Tuesday night, as we open up Revelation chapters 10, 11, and 12. In those very chapters is a guaranteed victory over the devil. We'll develop that in detail this coming Tuesday night. But for the time being, might we say this. In Psalm 118, verse number 6, Help is not to be found in man. Because isn't it true in 2 Corinthians 2.14, this statement is made. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said, We are always led in triumph in Christ. The question is not whether the Bible says that. The question is, do you and I believe it? Do we believe it? This world often displays things that are troubling. Nuclear warfare. People send anthrax letters. 
deluded people climb into towers and shoot innocent people. You and I ought not be afraid of those things. Because if we die in Christ, we're going to a better place than this one. That's the hope held out for us as Christians. Now, we don't look forward to seeing anybody die that way. But the fact is, if we are living in the Lord, paradise waits. And may we be so quick to say is, no matter what, victory is ours if we just be faithful to God. Do what He says. Live faithful to Him. Give our life in defiance to the things He teaches. One last set of verses on there takes us to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Verse number 31 mentions a very interesting question, and it's a question to which you and I would wholeheartedly say, say it again, if God be for us, who can be against us? And beginning in verse number 35, Paul wrote to those Roman brethren, and he made this statement to them, what shall we say then? Now notice as he begins that question in verse 35, he listed seven things. Persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we were killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. May we be quick to say the only being that can separate you or me from the love of Christ is ourself. I can choose to disobey. I can choose to follow the devil. I can choose to do what's displeasing to God, and I'll enter a devil's hell for that if I don't repent. But there's nobody else that can forcibly take you or me from the safety and the protection of the hand of Jesus Christ. We're the only ones that can choose to walk away. Doesn't that give you courage and confidence? Does it instill within us a fact that we're always led in triumph in Christ? Paul felt that way, and so too can you and I. I suppose in light of those things, we close that slide. And aren't you reminded in the midst of a world that looks so often bleak and dark, filled with discouragement, disappointment, and despair, we as Christians serve Jesus Christ who died for us, and He's promised us victory. Lesson number four. And it is our last lesson of this study tonight. Takes us to Gideon, one more attribute of his leadership, and one more facet of the work we see in his life. Did you notice that so far every part of these titles has involved God? Victory in God, confidence in God, obedience to God. One more thing, leadership with God. The time came, again, that the angel of the Lord commissioned Gideon. You are going to deliver my people. I'm choosing you. And doesn't that sound a bit like the days of Moses when at the burning bush, God said, Moses, you go and bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses' first response was, me, Lord? Are you sure you want me? And just like God told Moses, yes, you're the one. God told Gideon, yes, you're the one. 
and the example of the fleece on two consecutive nights drove that point home in Gideon's mind. As you think about leadership and the attributes that sometimes come to you and me, it seems that these thoughts were very appropriate. Aren't you impressed that once Gideon's mind and his self-doubt was removed, he took wholeheartedly the task that was before him. He put his mind to the task and he led that 300 men into battle, but he did it strategically. He gave them tasks to do. He stationed them appropriately. Doesn't that also highlight that although Gideon trusted in God, he knew God wanted him to use his abilities, his capabilities to the best that he could. And God still asks that of every one of us. He still asks that we do what we can with what we have. And He will blossom and bloom that into a great deal of victory for His cause. But we can't just idly sit by and just expect God to do everything. Gideon didn't. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. Peter didn't. John and James didn't. They took to task that great commissioning of God. And so it is... In Acts 20, 28, to those men that are elders, Paul writing to them said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so in that oversight, they lead us, they move us, motivate us, lead us into those tasks and efforts and works that God would have us to do. As each of us imagine... And think about these lessons from Gideon. Though Gideon lived a long time ago, aren't you impressed with the fact that he became one of the judges of Israel? Now, only, five, only 15 judges are named in the Old Testament. Fifteen. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, and Abimelech. That's the first six. Though Gideon was so humble and felt as if he wasn't capable... His name has now stood throughout these millennia as one of those 15 judges of Israel. What does God have in store for you and me? That which we can do to push His cause forward, to enlarge the boundaries of His kingdom, and to do that which is noble, productive, efficient, good and right in His sight. Seems like it prompts each of us to ask the question, just like Isaiah did. Who am I, Lord? Send me! Isaiah 8, Isaiah 6, verse 8. As we close this lesson tonight, I trust we've each been encouraged to think positively, to think optimistically, because as Christians we really can and we really should. Have you obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you become a Christian? Have you become a member of the blood-bought body of Christ? that beautiful scene in which your sins are washed away, not by the power of men, men can't do it, by the power of God through the blood of Jesus Christ His Son. Tonight, as we come to this point in our service, we do offer an invitation, not because it's ours, but because it's His. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labored are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. Do you hear that promise? He didn't say you might, you may, you can. He said you will find rest to your souls. If you're agitated, frenetic, troubled, and bothered, you need to come to the Master. 
He said, my peace I leave with you. In the world you're going to have tribulation. My peace I leave with you, John 16, 33. Tonight, if we could be a source of encouragement, we want you to know that the gospel plan of salvation is found in the Word of God. And in that plan of salvation, that commitment, that obedience that you and I make, in which we believe with all of our heart that Jesus is the Son of God, we repent of our sins, we confess His name as a Son of God, and we are humbly and submissively baptized. In so doing, He washes our sins away. He adds us to the church. We rise from that watery grave, live with a desire to live faithfully until death. Revelation 2, verse number 10. Tonight, though, if you have become a Christian, but maybe you haven't been faithful, maybe you have long since again begun to be wearied, worried, untrusting in God, Tonight, you realize that that's not the pattern God wants you to have. He doesn't want us to live a life that way. He wants you and I to live a life of confident victory and absolute assurance. And if that isn't descriptive of you, make it so through the power of Christ. If you've been guilty of sins of a public character, why not confess them before this audience? but primarily confessing them before God. And He's promised upon your repentance and your belief in Him. As you confess them, He'll forgive them. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. And tonight, if we could pray to God on your behalf, it would be a delightful evening. You could leave this place ready to pillow your head tonight, confident, assured, knowing that whatever befalls you or this world at large, all is well with your soul. But tonight, if it isn't, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. If right now we could be of help to somebody, we want you to know that we're here just as the Lord is, and we want to be of service. We'd invite you to let us know, though, in what way we can assist you and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.